The Gemara in Kiddushin says that a father is obligated to teach his son a trade so that he has the ability to earn a respectable living. I really lucked out on this one. Today, we are speaking with my father, COO of our crowd, a Jerusalem-based VC firm, and chairman of Kavlanar, one of Israel's leading mental health providers. For the last 30 years, my father has created a unique synergy between his tech career and his chesed efforts, and I think we can divide them broadly into three buckets. Number one, career coaching and networking. Number two, nonprofit fundraising and consulting. And number three, maybe most importantly, just being a mensch, listening, supporting, and pitching in wherever is needed. Abba and I speak about these issues all the time, and I am so excited to let you in on the conversation. My name is Yaakov Wolf, and this is Start Tank. Hi, Abba. Welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is fun. So... You talk a lot to young people about their careers and about their life. And I feel like sometimes we can discuss having a successful career and how to build that up. We can talk about having work-life balance and how to make sure that our family and other values stay strong. And I feel like those two conversations at best are disconnected from each other. At worst, they can come into friction with each other. So if you're talking about taking on a side hustle or going for that MBA degree, staying late to take on other projects in the office. So maybe we can try to figure out a way to talk about these two topics, not in a way which are disconnected or in friction, but rather in a way where the advice that builds a great career is the same advice and creates a synergy with having a balanced life and life outside of the office as well. So the entire journey in terms of work and earning a parnasa and earning a living obviously is one which consumes a great deal of our both emotions and energy, especially at the earlier stages when we're unsure and uncertain of what the future holds. And everybody wants to feel good and secure. That's a very human tendency about their ability, not just in the short term, but in the long term, to be able to feed their family in most cases, especially in our population. Also in terms of living with dignity, as many of our own philos, our own prayers refer to. And like everything, obviously, uh, it's a combination of our effort, our ishtadlus, and the hashgacha pratis, divine supervision that we're blessed with, which we don't control. So everybody has their own strengths, everyone has their own tendencies, and everyone, more, more importantly, has their own values. I think a lot of the conversation has to start about what your values are and what your priorities are, and hopefully if those two are in synergy, then the rest becomes, I won't say easy, but a lot more simple to approach. So if we specifically are talking about a general path, a general career choice, nobody really knows for sure what they'll be able to succeed in. But very often we start with what we've seen at home, both in terms of what our parents or friends or family do day by day, but also in terms of how they handle it, right? So when someone grows up in an environment where you know, working endlessly around the clock, logging in from home, as we say nowadays, not when I was growing up, that also impacts the path that we take. But it's important to always start by taking that piece of paper and making sure that in front of our own eyes all the time, we're keeping our value sets in check and our priorities in check. And just to that end, I do like to tell people who are early on and starting out that our lives are really a set of concentric circles. You're always the at, at the epicenter, but over time, things change. 
when you're single, maybe your immediate outside circle are your parents or your friends. As you get married, hopefully, it becomes your wife. As you have children, they get into the picture. So where exactly in the concentric circles is your employer and your work life? And keeping that radar screen clear is the key to uh, ultimately achieving that, if we want to call it work-life balance, but more appropriately, work-life synergy, as you properly use that word. So you mentioned having concentric circles, being aware of yourself and your values. How does that not only help you prioritize and map out your work and your life and all the different parts, but also make your career great and successful? So yeah, self-awareness has various elements to it. When we're young, we generally are aware of what we're good at and we're taking pride in what we good at and what we're good at and the natural blessings or talents or skills that are God-given. And both parents and kids, I think, typically zone in on that. And I think that also does correlate a little bit early stage in, in your career to not obsessing with what you love or what emotionally attracts you, but where you can be effective, where you can be a builder, where you can be a producer. And that really is how you begin to build your own, not just your own work value, but it also does allow you to then become more aware of whether that also dovetails with what you enjoy and what you believe in. So self-awareness, I think, is a com combination of your own strengths, your beliefs, and again, depending on at what point uh, in your life you're starting to work, what else around you needs to be considered. So those three elements are key. As an example, if I am able to start to achieve in a work environment that I believe to be suitable for me, and my choice is not purely based on how much it pays, then I will ultimately be able to start to figure out, and this only comes at a certain point in one's professional evolution, okay, so now that I know what I can do, what can I do with what I do? And where else can I apply those skills? And one might often be surprised about, especially in the day and age that we live in, given the technology, given the flexibility, given wide range of work environments to choose from, what else one can pursue over time. And I think it's very important not to pigeonhole oneself in a long-term vision, but rather cultivate over time what it is that that moves you and what it is that, that can create that impact because ultimately that's the satisfaction at work, right? We spend an enormous percentage of our lives over time involved in work and work as we in Hebrew is avodah and yet we're always striving as religious Jews and religious people to perform our avodah and that's where the two can meet. Where is it that my that all that time that I invest is not just to see the paycheck in the bank at the end of the week or at the end of the month or at the end of the day, but what is it that is giving, what is it that I'm giving into greater society, greater culture, community as a result of those efforts? Because without that, I think one will for a long time not be satisfied with that investment. And that satisfaction is really what's going to make one and I use air quotes, happy in their work. And happiness is something which we have to be not counting on someone else to provide for us, but something that we are accountable to create for ourselves. That's true in every walk of life, but certainly when it comes to, to work. So if I understand correctly, you're saying that there's no point in having a very specific long-term vision, but there is a lot of value in making sure that in the early stages, you're building skills so that as 
things come along, you're able to apply those skills in the more meaningful areas of life, even though the opportunity to match your skills and your passions might not be there at the very early stages. Did I understand that correctly? I think so. The I know that every specific case is going to be different. And again, it's important not to not to blanket every unique individual circumstance in general rules. But obviously, many of our friends, many of our family are getting themselves trained in law, getting themselves trained in medicine, getting themselves trained in finance, getting themselves trained in technology. And what we choose to train in is clearly a choice that that does have long-term impact. You can't necessarily decide after a year and a half of being a doctor that you want to become a lawyer, although I know people who have done that too. But once you take that path, which again, is generally built on what it was you were good at in school or where your academic performance w- was greatest, but even as you do that, and even as you're coming out of university or trading online in something, it's very important to keep in mind that there really is no area in life in which you automatically are signed up to a certain level of satisfaction. And what I mean by that is that whether you're in the finance world or the medical world or what have you, you have to put yourself in a culture. You have to create for yourself a culture in which your values and beliefs can not just coexist, but ideally blend with with what it is that you are expected to deliver and what it is that you're being compensated to do. And it's not always easy, but it is our individual responsibility. The same way that when we build a home and when we raise our children, there's lots of external factors that we can point to and say, if only that were different, or if only our community was different. That's not going to be a very satisfying or successful formula. We have to really understand that. And each and every individual is accountable and capable of creating that. Whether you want to say, whether it's true that every day you wake up and have another set of decisions to make, that's obviously the case on a micro level. But on a macro level, you choose a direction, you choose a path, and then it takes a lot of work, takes a lot of effort. But if one simply says, I can't help it. My work environment is full of schwutz or it's a dog eat dog or rat race. Then you got to figure out whether that's something which, which can still fit the bill or whether you need to move on. And whether that requires a small amount of sacrifice or a large amount of sacrifice in the long run, it's an absolutely, in my opinion, mandatory sacrifice that one needs to make as in all the things that we do. Can you give any examples from your own life, how the self-awareness of the concentric circles helped you navigate a difficult decision? So I'm now 30 years into my work career, which I'm fortunate to have spent half in the US and half in Israel, with a couple of years also in the United Kingdom. So I've had a taste of a lot of different environments. I have worked in the for-profit world. I have worked in the nonprofit world as a professional, and it hasn't been the neatest mapping of what one would call a career trajectory. But I think that's also a reflection of how I view the same general principle of a career and a work-life synergy. Opportunities have come up. I'm very fortunate, very blessed that um, I haven't really had to go too far and wide to seek those opportunities. But when opportunities come up, you do have some binary decisions to make. So for example, when I started out with an engineering degree, 
I felt like manufacturing was interesting to me, creating things, producing things that you could touch and feel and see the outcome of was something which maybe, you know, based on my own personality, I felt was most satisfying. But at some point, probably about five or six years in, that's when certain technologies were picking up in the enterprise area and realizing that maybe the next step was going to be that what you're producing is not necessarily something you can hold, but something that you can measure. So it became something going from more material to measurable. And then after that, so that I think that's one specific example. Okay. So you mentioned your early career and how at some point you shifted from manufacturing and engineering to software. But going back to that early engineering part of your life, can you tell us what the first stage in your career was when you left college? Sure. The first job I took was because I wanted to be able to pay for my wife's engagement ring, my future wife's engagement ring. So I interned during the summer of my, after my junior year in a manufacturing environment, which I really enjoyed. My degree is in industrial engineering, which back then meant the science of combining the man and the machine. It was originated when the industrial revolution, efficiency, quality, how do you balance the human touch with the resources to create something at scale. And ironically, 30 years later, I find that to still be very true, by the way, which is one of my very first mentors used to say business would be easy if there were no people involved. And I think an extension of that, while that's very true and ironic, I think people are very easy when business isn't involved. When people aren't necessarily competing for the same position or trying to make the bonus or trying to put their self over their environment, that's, there's always that element of trying to com combine the human need with the business need. I will go on a slight digression here and say that in some ways that's the difference between Kodesh and Hull, right? Hull is anything that is material and in this world and serving ourselves. And Kodesh is anything that's above the world and something which we serve for others. And so I think that's also not a bad compass to use. Even, even if your work feels very material, the way you approach that work can still have Kedusha if it's not constantly about whether it's satisfying yourself, whether it's paying you the highest salary, et cetera. So in answer to your question, coming out of university, having had that manufacturing experience, while there were offers coming from an Ivy League school, having a degree from Columbia, to go into consulting and management consulting, which was also a track for a lot of industrial engineers, the choice was to go into manufacturing, where I had to actually produce something myself, where I was on the line to test whether I could perform and I could deliver. And that did ultimately, more than I ever thought it would, I think, shape how I see other people starting their careers. Today, I work in venture capital, which is a very uh, attractive area to a lot of people because it, it looks like that's where all of the power sits. But I think that a very young person starting right away into venture capital is a little bit parallel to what it was in 1993 for someone in 1994 starting to go into consulting. You're starting to tell people whether what they're doing is valuable. You're trying to tell people what to do when you yourself haven't necessarily done it. When you yourself haven't actually built your own business, pretty hard to tell someone else what's right and wrong about the business they're trying to build or how much value it's worth, which is what venture capitalists have to do. So you're looking back 30 years down the line at that decision, but in the moment you had these offers from fancy consulting companies and from a factory. What did you do when you had that decision to make? So I started with my greatest mentor and resource, which was my father, 
And, but it also did take into consideration watching some of my friends and how they were going about the same process because I wasn't alone in that journey. I'm graduating alongside a bunch of other people with a lot of other backgrounds and actually knowing that their backgrounds and their cultures and their values, their beliefs were not exactly the same as mine was actually quite informed a lot of my own decision, seeing what kind of guided them to, oh, that's, that's going to be in a fancy office. That's going to be, allow me to do a lot of traveling. Those were not the things that necessarily drove me. And I was able to not only compare with my own father's guidance, but contrast with some of the folks who I was experiencing it alongside. And you made a decision to go with manufacturing. Where was that first job and what were you actually doing? So my first job was in a, a food manufacturing facility in New Jersey called Interbaked Foods, which we basically baked cookies, except we did them on factory lines that were in conveyors that were two miles long. We were baking them in the uh, millions a day, made most of America's Girl Scout cookies. And I was assigned to a project to try to integrate some very advanced technology in the packing and warehousing of lots and lots of boxes of cookies and crackers on a daily basis. And you mentioned how obviously the world has changed so much in the 30 years since that first job. So you mentioned one takeaway that you still live with, which is the difference between VCs and startups, the difference between consultants and manufacturers. Are there any other soft skills or other takeaways that really guide you to this day from those early experiences? Yeah. So I, I was fortunate to be put very early on in, in a managerial role. I didn't feel, well, I guess I felt fortunate from a self-esteem standpoint, but the day-to-day -day work of trying to manage certain people who were twice your age was not pleasant. The challenge of trying to be a, uh, an, an Orthodox Jew in, a, in an environment where most people weren't exactly keen on, on some of our difference in backgrounds. And that presented me with tremendous challenges that I could not have been trained for that no university will teach. And I think that, and I refer to the fact that every single person who, who works around you and certainly those who report to you, your first priority has to be to try to understand what makes them tick, understand what is important to them, and find a balance between getting out of each individual the most that they can give you. But that's not just about putting the right tools in front of them. It's also giving them the appreciation for what they're doing has meaning and how that makes them feel about themselves. So those are the soft skills that I think I like to believe have driven me to this day. And those are the soft skills that also make one should make one realize because not everybody is a manager. There are people who can sit their entire lives and just write code and do very well in terms of Arnasa. There are those who can go into actuarial work and be extremely valuable just as a one-man band. And again, that comes back to your self-awareness. That comes back to, is that the type of, is that the definition of, is that part of the definition of to you? To some it is, to some it isn't. But again, each and every person has their area which they believe they can impact. And in my case, I felt like the ability to get the most out of people around me, the ability to create the best blend of the human relationship and the professional relationship. I, I think as a result, one of the things that looking back, I still have plenty to look forward, but looking back, certainly the relationships that I built in the work environment, many have lasted a lifetime. 
And that's not something which I'll ever be able to me- measure in a pension account or in a in looking back at product that we delivered or results that we delivered. Or, but it, it certainly over the long run is what, for me personally, created a lot of job satisfaction, to use a pretty lame cliche. Well, so I want to hold on this point just for one more minute. It's really been special to see the relationships that you've been able to cultivate, starting from some very high-profile individuals, which we can't even mention here on recording, all the way down to the maintenance and cleaning staff at institutions that you work. All of them have a great love and respect for you. But there are certain risks involved in creating personal relationships with your business contact and also with bringing friends and family from outside of work into your business life. So do you have any advice on that possible tension of the risks involved in mixing those two? Okay. So first of all, a correction, I would say far from everyone who I worked with necessarily wanted to stay connected with me for the long run, no matter how hard one works to try to uh, create a an environment in which it's uh, not what we call net sum zero, where we can both win. There are some people who, based on their backgrounds and personal circumstances, are not able to accept that. And we can only do as much as we do. And it takes sometimes for some of us a long time to recognize that not every one of those encounters is winnable. So we get over that as we get older. But in terms of, you mentioned some of the people I've worked with, mentors who I prefer not to call out by name, but one of them used to quote The Godfather and say, when Don Corleone says, hey, it's business, nothing personal. And I know most of your audience doesn't watch movies, but they may have heard that quote. It's always personal. We can delude ourselves to say you can separate them. But I think in the belief system that we're brought up in and the education that we get, there is nothing more primary than the personal relationship and the respect that one has to give to every every image of God that is put into every human being. And the minute you lose sight of that, I believe you lose the ability to stay on track. So you don't have to have been a student of Musser's Farim. There's plenty of people who have not a shred of Jewish in them, not a shred of Torah in them, who embody that in, in their lives. And it's also very important to recognize that part, which is that it doesn't really matter whether they're Jewish or not, whether they have a keep on their head or not. I have some of my role models in that department couldn't be farther from all of the above, but yet they had the the innate ability to recognize that uh, human dignity is above all. And if you can stick to that consistently, despite some of the challenges you run into at work, then ultimately I think that's the satisfaction you enjoy in the long term. So I want to shift gears for a minute. You're a manager, you've hired and fired a whole bunch of people. You speak to young people all the time. So I want to ask you a question of personal advice for a theoretical individual. He's in his last semester of college. He's finishing a degree in business and marketing, and he's looking for his first real job. He's done some side gigs in marketing with nonprofits in the past, totally hypothetical, of course. And he's in his last semester. He's looking ahead to his first full-time job. What should he be focusing on? So I believe that every individual, even at a young age, has a story to tell and has a picture to reveal to the person who's interviewing. In a job application process, again, and it depends on whether you're applying to a very large company or a very small company or a for-profit or a non-profit, there's all sorts of shapes and sizes. But very often you submit your resume and it gets rejected because you didn't necessarily tick all the boxes for what the job requirements are. But at the end of the day, you're going to be fortunate enough to get an interview. And even if you don't, I would say before we even talk about interviewing, you talk about networking. And I think that the most important part 
of seeking a job, whether it's at the beginning or the middle or the end of a career, is about your network and about making sure that whoever's out there gets to know you, the person, as opposed to you, the professional resume. I tell entry-level applicants, make sure that you look back on the things that you've done. And almost each and every one of us has done something, whether it's in high school, whether it's in university, whether it's as a volunteer, whether it's a busboy or waiter in camp. There's something to be said for how you did the things that you got involved in, whether you got paid for it, whether you were volunteering for it. And figure out how to tell that story. Figure out how to capture that in a way that is relatable to other people. And pretty hard to get specific because each and every one of us has their own story. But if you're somebody who, you know, who volunteered or worked for Yachad and worked with special needs kids or was a counselor in camp or was the head of a club in high school, or even if you were someone who coordinated a Chogin Yeshiva, come to a specific audience, what was it that you did? What was it that you enjoyed about doing it? What was it that drove you to do it in the first place? It starts there. And then with every, you'll get your first experience in one way or another. And if you always go in with that approach, it will also help you keep your own temperature as you're doing the next things that you're doing and using that, that, that litmus test all the time. Am I doing it for the right reasons? Am I doing it in the right way? Am I implementing my values in the things that I'm also keeping busy with and spending time during the day to, to earn that paycheck? And that can create a, a very solid, your resume might be your foundation, but, but what you're doing with it is the, the look and feel of the walls and the windows around it. Okay. Moving on to our last part of our conversation, you're also very active in the nonprofit world. You're currently the chairman of Kablanar, which is one of Israel's leading mental health organizations. But it's not just a side gig. At one point, you were full-time in the nonprofit world. Can you tell us how you shifted from the beginning of your career in baking cookies and in software to nonprofit? Yeah, it's, it was both a function of personal circumstance and professional circumstance. We had just had our fourth child, and the professional side was requiring a lot of travel, which I felt was certainly impacting potentially or feared that it was potentially impacting my, my presence in the house and my ability to be around for my kids. And I, it was also a time where I had been in technology. I had been working for a startup that was acquired by a public company, and the tech bubble after the year 2000 had burst. I was very fortunate. I really was. My job was stable, but the work environment was had become a little bit, referring to what we talked about before, it was not feeling very satisfying. A lot of people were working just to keep their jobs. Watching a lot of people getting laid off wasn't very enjoyable. So I had a sense that maybe that path was getting a little bit worn. And I think at every point in the game, again, if you're, I had a training that gave me the ability to perform in multiple types of environments. Maybe not everybody does. Right. Your, my, my wife is a doctor. I don't know just how many different options she would have in face with that challenge. But going all the way back to, I think, one of the very first stories, maybe the first story of job decisions, you have the story of, of Kain and Hevel. And I think the Rashi on, on Hevel, that he was a Roet zone. And I know that Jakob Wolf has written about the values of being a Roet zone in and of itself. For those who haven't read it, you should look it up. Rashi says that Hevel was a Roet zone because he recognized that the, the ground was cursed. So to do what was the 
most natural thing to do, which was to just work the land. He chose otherwise. And in the end of the story, you can see how that actually worked to his advantage. So sometimes you have to just look at the environment around you. But again, it's a combination of what you're good at and, and whether what you want to apply yourself to do is necessarily the most satisfying, the most beneficial. I did have the opportunity to work as a professional at Maimonides School for almost five years and apply my managerial and business know-how to the nonprofit environment. There, again, I had actually been inspired and motivated by certain people who I had seen make that transition. And I think both in terms of contrasting the work environment 20 years ago to what it is today, certainly contrasting in the environment I live in today in Israel, the kind of that big wall between working for a for-profit and non-profit has come way, way down. And that even though, again, there's always a certain reality about what paycheck your employer can afford to give you. But depending on circumstance, I think everybody has the ability to, even if you're in the medical profession, there are areas to practice medicine that may not pay you as much and may not you know, be as glorious, but you can really apply those skills and do things that create a different type of impact. And you have to really look at all those considerations at every point in time and not be afraid that those decisions are going to be lifelong sentences. And I really, truly believe that one of the advantages for people starting now as a professional is that mix and that optionality along the way is only going to become more flexible. I think that's part of the, the, the technology world and the J-curve that we're living on. When I was growing up, it was pretty typical that people would stay with a company for 20 or 30 or 40 years. And today, I think it's highly atypical that someone even stays with a company when you're early in your career for more than two or three years. Everybody is jumping to the next thing. You can apply for your next job. Literally, while being on a Zoom meeting, you can be on a LinkedIn interview on another screen and see that people should view that as, a, as both an opportunity and a little bit of, a, of an indicator that you have much more ability today to focus on the right values of your career choice and not have to fear that you're going to sacrifice something 10 years down the road. Okay. So we talked a lot about different strategies and mindset shifts and taking control and doing the best we can at putting ourselves in the best mindset, the best situations that we can. But we did mention before that Garish Baruch runs this world and he has his ways of sending us messages. So do you have any stories where in your life Garish Baruch reminded you how much he's in charge of everything that goes on? Always. And it happens whether it's obvious or not. And sometimes it's obvious. I guess it's you're using the cold do do fake model contrast between a life of fate and a life of destiny. Are you the object or are you the subject? For me, there was definitely the most major, there were two major actually episodes that I think I can look back on. The most obvious was referring to this kind of prior conversation, which maybe I should have mentioned uh, at the time that I was thinking about transitioning to something else after the tech bubble burst. And I didn't immediately go towards seeking a nonprofit job. But one of the things that was clearly on my mind was that I was doing a lot of travel between Boston and Los Angeles. And on a certain week in September of 2001, I had booked a ticket to continue my project in California. And I ended up rescheduling that trip because I didn't want to necessarily be in California during the week of Slikos. I backed the trip up by a week. So I traveled on September 4th instead of September 11th from Boston to Los Angeles. And I don't think I need to tell much of the rest of that story. The fact that I personally felt like I had dodged a bullet to and recognized 
dramatic, the, the drama of what was going on around me and the fact that we're always close to some sort of fate that we don't necessarily know certainly did influence my decision not to take yet another job at the time that was going to require travel. It was why working at my Maimonides school was so wonderful, even if the hours were very long, but I was always coming home at night, sometimes very late at night. And the other circumstance was in 2006, after a year after our family was on vacation in Israel in 2005, where we were having a vacation while the Gaza Strip was being handed over to somebody else to control. A year later, we were on another summer vacation in Cape Cod. Sounds like we took a lot of vacations. You probably don't remember it that way. And while we were on vacation, the second Lebanon war was going on, and one of our family members fell. And that's when my wife and I looked at each other and said, time to get off the sidelines of Jewish history and get onto the playing field. And as hard as it was, challenging as it was to imagine continuing our careers at that point and rebuilding in Israel, it was something which, like you say, the world around us has to resonate with us. We have to hear the knocking on that door, and we have to be all listening to the, to the beat of our own heart. And as a result taking the next step in the direction we think is the right one and hoping that we have the Seattle Dishmayats who go along with it in a way that comes out right for all of us, for our families and for our for our own personal well-being. Ava, thank you so much for all the wisdom you're constantly imparting on us and especially for sitting down and sharing with us today. And I think I greatly appreciate what you are doing in this effort with the podcasts. I think we live in a world of a ridiculous amount of information and curated imagery of what make something a perfect work life outside of us. There's never been a more interesting time to be getting into the workspace, but also probably never a more challenging time to have clarity on our decision making. And hopefully some of the other interviewees can do even a better job of guiding others to to take the right first step. And from there, everybody should be blessed with in their avodah and their avodah. Thank you so much for tuning in to Startake. If you're still listening at this point, that means that you've enjoyed. Please take a moment to give us a five-star review, make sure that you're subscribed, and share this episode with a few friends. I want to thank our production team, Yoni Schwartz, Yitzhak Schwibben, and Yossi Book. Until next week, keep on steigen, Chevra. Okay.